This is the Midrange Theory Podcast with your hosts, Tommy D and Ian Levy. On this episode, ESPN's Kevin Pelton joins us to talk about scouting and stats, Jabari Parker and Andrew Wiggins 2016, and the life and times of Vince Carter in the NBA. A real pleasure and honor to have Kevin Pelton from ESPN with us. And Kevin, this this debate is is one of Ian and I's favorites, which is, uh, is, is Vince Carter a Hall of Famer? When you, you look at the full body of work, and obviously let you talk uh, about the numbers and uh, the piece that you did for uh, Insider the other day. Uh, an amazing play, an amazing talent coming out of college. Obviously had the, the rough uh, early stretch there in Toronto paired with Tracy McGrady. Went to a Nets team that was on obviously on the other side of their uh, finals runs in, in the Jason Kidd, Kidd era. When you talk to people within the, the Nets organization, they, they've, they rave about Vince Carter to this day. Uh, I think a lot of people around the league have great respect for him. And then as he evolved now up, up to 40 years old, uh, which is amazing when you think about it, um, really was able to create a role for himself uh, based off of a weakness that many people said he had, which was the inability to shoot. You know, now he's almost a, a stretch guy. He can obviously get the ball out uh, and, and make shots from the perimeter. Still can slash, can, can show a little bit of the athleticism. Um, but all in all, the question uh, remains. And to me, I, I, I say yes, but I'm obviously very uh, curious uh, here and, and the listeners would be as well uh, to get your thoughts just really breaking down uh, whether Vince Carter is a Hall of Famer or not. Well, what was really interesting to me, so I wrote this piece after Nate Duncan and I recorded a podcast last week where we went over kind of everyone who's currently in the NBA and their chances. And Vince was one of those guys who I don't think he was in the locks group that we had was in the guys who aren't really adding to their resume at this point, but still may or may not get in. And I, I kind of always had seen it as an open question and felt that, you know, a, a few years ago when you said Vince Carter Hall of Fame, people recoiled in horror at the very thought of it. And then now when I wrote that article, the number one response I got on Twitter and on Reddit was, is this even discussion? So it, in, it intrigues me how we got from that point where I think most people were no to this isn't even a question. And Part of it is I think there are two separate questions you you kind of have to ask with the Hall of Fame, which is, number one, will this guy be a Hall of Famer? And number two, should they be a Hall of Famer? I think will with Vince Carter at this point, it's pretty much a lock, I think, when you look at 24,000 points. You know, everyone else over 20,100 has been voted in. He's going to get in. The eight All-Stars, all of that. Uh, Now, by the way, six in all-time three-pointers. Uh, speaking to that thing about him becoming a shooting specialist. Now, should he become a Hall of Famer? I think that's a more interesting question because of the fact that he didn't have a ton of playoff success, never had you know really that many huge seasons. Those were kind of the, the arguments I laid out in my piece against it. I, I think yes, but I don't think it's a no-brainer to me. He seems really interesting um, because it, I feel like that question of should he be in the Hall of Fame, it comes down to sort of people's individual definitions of what the Hall of Fame is and what the purposes right. are and what it's supposed to recognize. Is it a you know is it a museum of basketball history and is it so, supposed to sort of um, you know chart the the best in the game or is it specifically a you know a, a celebration of individual greatness? Um, and so like for Carter, the things that that um, 
I think the most interesting things about him are things that lend itself to that museum kind of idea, you know, like his slam dunk contest performances and kind of the aesthetic of, of his young, uh, athletic days in Toronto. Um, and then it, 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 it's interesting, this idea you were talking about sort of the evolution of, of the perception of him as a hall of famer has really changed while he's been irre- mostly irrelevant on the court, I mean, the last sort of really meaningful basketball moment he had was like, what was it three or four years ago where he hit that game winner for the Mavericks um, against the Spurs in the first round? Um, and, you know, for the rest of that time, he's sort of this like veteran presence on the bench, but that has also. Um, you know, sort of undone this this lasting perception of him from his days in Toronto mm-hmm. as kind of a selfish cancer, um, you know, uh, out for himself and, and the way he sort of turned his back on the team. So it's interesting because it's like the, the perception of him has evolved sort of separately from his play and his statistics and things like that. Yeah, it's sort of like the, he's kind of, you know, it's like someone who throws out a bunch of opinions and then kind of it buries the one really controversial opinion that they have because just there's so much that it's difficult to pick through them. So now Vince Carter has layered all these years of just being, you know, good veteran teammate Vince Carter over questionable may have quit on the Raptors and wanted out Vince Carter. And the other uh, the other thing that came up in the replies to me from the kind of the museum aspect, besides the the dunking, the dunk on Frederick Weiss, the the dunk contest, was uh, the that his legacy is the guy who really built basketball in Toronto and even more generally in Canada. So that's interesting that now, you know, the Raptors period has gone from not just being a stain on his record to being, you know, kind of uh, uh, neither good nor bad. Now it's actually a positive in his regard because of the fact that people look at all these players who have come out of Toronto and the basketball hotbed that it's become and give him a lot of credit for that. There's a lot of parallels aside from the big shots and certainly the championship, you know, the, the, the postseason success that Paul Pierce has had. I, I feel like there's a lot of parallels and, and Paul Pierce has been this borderline superstar to like supreme, like awesome role player veteran um, who, you know, makes team and, and teammates better. I don't know about te- every teammate, but goes to, to teams and, I don't know if he's riding the wave necessarily, um, but certainly has the ability to, uh, to to find himself in the playoffs and, and make big shots. And of course, I'm talking as someone who's seen who's seen him do that much, uh, very much against the Knicks. Carter did. Carter does not have that. Ian mentioned the, the the shot that he made against the Spurs a couple of years ago. The first thing that comes to mind certainly is the dunk contest. Um, but there's really no iconic moments. But there there is this evolution with Carter. Uh, that Pierce shared as well, and just being a good teammate and and getting into rotations and just providing really valuable minutes to some really you know pretty decent teams at the end of his career. Absolutely, and yeah, it's rare. You know, I, that was one thing I kind of asked: is there is there a way to quantify this transition that Carter has made? And you know, the one thing I sell it on in the piece is just the number of useful seasons he's had. I set that bar at five wins above replacement player by my metric. And he's had, you know, more of those than a lot of inner circle hall of famers who just didn't play as long or some of whom, you know, kind of declined very quickly after their peak. So he, he also does. Carter is also an interesting hall of fame argument to me because it gets at a couple of questions, which are how you balance regular season success versus playoff success. Because, you know, if you look at, 
at uh, the another metric I have championships added, which is kind of my like career value hall of fame type metric. He's 47th in terms of his production or 71st in terms of his production in the regular season, which is definite hall of fame material, 138th in the playoffs, which is probably out at that point. There's a lot of guys who have been better than that in the playoffs that aren't in. And then also, you know, peak value versus, uh, accumulating value over time. You know, there's a lot of guys that had higher peaks than Vince Carter, but maybe didn't accumulate as much. So that's why to me, it is an interesting question, even if people think it's settled. Um, for what it's worth, I uh, before we talked, I pulled up the uh, Hall of Fame probabilities on Basketball Reference, uh, and I'm not I'm not totally positive what feeds into this, uh, what all the components are, but um, they have Vince Carter ranked tenth among active players, ninety four and a half percent probability, uh, and he's sandwiched right in between Carmelo Anthony and Tony Parker, which is sort of interesting to think about. You know, Anthony. Um, you know that that that's another career track that that may sort of uh, be kind of mapping close to Carter's, where um, you know Anthony's not gonna uh, maybe not uh, end up with uh, with rings and a lot of playoff success, but it's going to be uh, you know hanging around for a long time, sort of building up uh, the quantitative parts of his resume, you know, total points scored and things like that. Right, another case where there is he a Hall of Famer. No doubt in my mind he's getting in, especially because in his case from, you know, the, whether the museum or the you want to talk about is global basketball in addition to just the NBA, since it's the basketball Hall of Fame, not the NBA Hall of Fame. You know, the fact that he won the national championship at Syracuse, uh, the success that he's had with the U.S. in the Olympics, all of that makes him a no brainer Hall of Famer. But if you're asking, should he be a Hall of Famer? That's a that's a little bit tougher to answer. I think the, the answer is, again, probably still yes, but tougher to answer it's a it's a great segue and i and i think we could talk more about mellow um but i'd love to be able to kind of pick your brain because you were talking about this uh, going back to a couple of drafts ago one player who talking about career paths and and just almost apples to apples comparison jabari parker to to a carmelo anthony maybe a vince carter but i think maybe a, a better comparison would be mellow and andrew wiggins and that decision uh, both players off to what we we consider uh, pretty impressive starts here early on in the season. And when you think back to that draft, and it really was a, a coin flip when you think about it, both incredibly talented, two different players. I've been blown away at, at Wiggins' Wiggins' ability uh, to get down in the post, draw fouls, and be you know pretty efficient uh, you know in the half court. I always figured he would be a good transition player to start and then work his way into that. Uh, half-court space and, and, and learn to score. And Parker's a, a dynamic face-up player, as we know, and, and certainly is a mismatch and, and can do some stuff in the post as well. As you see them now here uh, through you know the, the, the early stages of their career and certainly this season, um, you, you go back to that thought process in the draft, and has anything changed based off of how they've performed thus far? Well, it's funny because that's another one that uh, Chad Ford and I wrote about this in in one of our kind of back and forth or debates. And again, we got the reply from people on Twitter. Is this even a question? You know, because of the fact that Wiggins is now scoring almost 25 points a game, had that 47 point effort a few games ago. And I still think it is, although, again, the answer, I think, is is pretty clearly Wiggins at this point. But, you know, both of those guys, uh, you this season, it looks like the step forward they've really taken is in terms of their shooting. And, you know, you have to be careful uh, looking at this too early in the season because of the fact that there's a tendency to be fluky. But, you know, Wiggins shooting 44 percent from three and from a subjective standpoint, 
his shot just looks much better. Uh, he, I think Kevin O'Connor may have written about this on the ringer last week about the work he's done to kind of change his motion. And, you know, it looks like he should be, if not a 40% shooter from three, probably high thirties. And that makes him a very dynamic offensive player in combination with the post-up ability against smaller defenders and then against slower defenders, the ability to put the ball on the ground and beat them in isolation, get into the paint, get to the free throw line, all of that offensively that it's funny because Anthony is the comparison I've used for Wiggins in terms of, you know, some people, uh, some people in the statistical analysis community have been critical, made the comparison to, you know, maybe DeMar DeRozan or Rudy Gay that, you know, he's going to be a volume scorer who doesn't do much else. And to me, it's hard to see him be not getting to a better level than those guys. Gay in particular have gotten as a score. DeRozan is there so far this year. You know, he's probably not going to stay there. The question with Wiggins to me is still almost entirely about you know what else is he going to contribute uh given his physical gifts it's really remarkable that he's not a better rebounder uh has never had a particularly great steal rate and and that's even been worse this year and then you know other than his individual one-on-one defense hasn't been uh that effect impactful at that end of the court you know jabari in his case He's also improved his form, and it's a lot safer to say that he's improved from a three-point standpoint because he's already made more than he took all of last season, or made made more than he made all of last season when he didn't make a single three before the All-Star break. So that really opens things up for him because you know he's again, if he's playing power forward, he's a really tough matchup for a lot of guys with now both his shooting ability and his explosiveness off the dribble. Uh, again, you know, some defensive questions. Can you get away with him defensively as a power forward? I think you probably can as long as you have Giannis next to him. But, uh, you know, that's that's still, I think, the challenge for both of these guys at this stage in the career. They've really taken strides offensively. Now it's it's rounding out their game. Both guys, I think, are in really interesting situations because they're um, the the developmental paths that their teams are charting for them seems like they are uh, really uh, context specific. And obviously that's the case with every young player, but it seems almost extreme in the, in this case. Um, so like with Parker, it was so essential that he, you know, um, increased his three point percentage and became an outside shooter because it doesn't look like that's uh, going to be part of Giannis's game anytime soon. And so, uh, you know, if they're going to play them together, they, they have to have one of those guys as a reliable outside shooter. Um, and then for Wiggins, it seems like uh, kind of the same thing with the arrival of, of, towns and him sort of taking up space in the middle of the floor on offense it became even more essential for for Wiggins to uh to develop his outside shot as well Exactly. I think Minnesota, you know, is in a much better position from a floor spacing standpoint because Towns can step away and make the three, maybe arguably their best shooter. And then, you know, Zach Levine is so much better than anyone Milwaukee has, at least with Chris Middleton out of the lineup right now. But yeah, it it really opens things up for both of those offenses. And, you know, I think it's going to help both of those guys in the long run to, to draw defenders out there, to have to have them respect their, their shot from the perimeter and therefore open things up for the drive it's it's interesting to me what when i think about towns and wiggins together and and both obviously needing a pass first point guard which they have in rubio and we've talked about rubio's importance here a, a bunch um if he could shoot a little bit better obviously that would and and play and be in the lineup a little bit more um obviously their their record would be a little bit different but i with with two alpha scores you know which we can i think we can we can call both 
Um, both adept in the post, uh, and, and Towns certainly can, can work his way out, uh, maybe not to 21, 22 feet, but, you know, he's, he's okay in pick and pop. Uh, and Wiggins is working on his shot. As a, as a coach, as, as a way of trying to get both of them to fit into one offense, they really are, aren't two perfectly uh, matched pieces, you know, in, in that half-court structure. Again, if you get some stops, you can get out in transition, and, and, and the game gets easier for every NBA team. Um, but if you're Tom Thibodeau, what's, what's the thought process, and how do you adjust your offensive game when you're really known as a defensive coach? I mean, so far it's worked pretty well for them at the offensive end of the floor, other than that that loss at Memphis the other night. You know, I, I think what you like is having options and the ability for both Towns and Wiggins to play inside out, outside in, uh, depending on matchups. You know, I think that gives them the opportunity to to really kind of pick and choose there. And the other interesting thing from Wiggins we've seen so far this season is a lot more operation out of the pick and roll. It was it was mostly isolation plays for him on the perimeter the, the first couple years he was in the NBA. So if you can eventually start running some Wiggins Towns pick and rolls, that I think is going to give defenders a lot of difficulty. You're not probably going to want to switch that. And, uh, you know, then does, does that give either towns an open pick and pop jumper or Wiggins, uh, ahead of steam to the basket, uh, that, I, that I think is going to be tough for them. So I have to ask this question. It's uh, <laughs> required uh, when we're talking uh, uh, Wiggins anytime he comes up. But uh, so he's uh, a sort of a test case for this idea of how hard it is to measure defense statistically. Mm-hmm. Uh, came in with a really strong defensive reputation. Uh, I think that's uh, fallen off slightly, but I think there's still this perception of him as somebody who has elite uh, defensive uh, potential um, and and to the eye test looks like a good defender, whereas the numbers generally rate him as a bad to catastrophically bad defender. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about where, what the disconnect is there between the stats and the eye test and um, you know, where in the middle, the truth uh, really lies uh, to your mind. Well, I think, you know, with Wiggins in particular, it, it's a case where, naturally when we're watching basketball, our eyes are drawn to the ball and as an on ball defender, you know, he's been pretty good to the extent that, you know, we can quantify that with synergy data and isolations and things like that. That's all been very strong for Wiggins and that matches up with what we're seeing. It's really the lack of plays that he makes as a help defender. That's uh, a bigger issue. And it's sometimes, you know, challenging. How can you see the steal that doesn't happen because of the fact that the guy doesn't react fast enough? Like it's, it's hard to to prove a negative so to speak in this in this standpoint when we're watching and I think that's much more what the numbers are picking up where he's just not doing a lot defensively he's not that involved and you know I think generally speaking people probably put too much weight on individual defense when they're talking about players defensive ability and not enough weight on their help defense uh, and and their responsibilities as part of a five player scheme and you know guys can improve there and that was kind of the expectation and the hope this year with Tom Thibodeau coming in that he would really harness the defensive tools that Wiggins has so far that hasn't been the case but that doesn't mean it won't be in the future I was talking to a longtime NBA scout the other day and watching the uh the, the Knicks debacle in in Washington uh watching John Wall and and Beal really light them up and I'm, I was thinking to myself is there another guard? And I tweeted it out and got some good responses. George Hill being one, and there were, there were a, a, a few others, but a very, very few uh, that I can think of off the top of my head. Is there a better uh, guard at 
at least attempting to stop uh, lead guards, elite lead guards in the NBA better than Chris Paul. And because of that, is that such a, uh, a, a big variable and why his PER and, and why his real plus minus is always uh, right at the top of the league behind, uh, obviously up there with everyone. Uh, probably the best two-way player if we were talking about point guards, um, top and bottom uh, across uh, both offensive and defensive skill sets. Uh, what is it about Chris Paul that just allows him to, uh, well, we'll talk about the real plus minus stuff right now. He's sitting on top of it right now. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about what you've seen uh, this year, uh, obviously, no drop in in the in the two way talents that uh, that that Chris Paul possesses. Yeah, and I think that's probably more about just how successful the Clippers have been defensively as a unit. You know, in terms of they've been switching very effectively, they're communicating very well with the starting lineup intact for the second straight season, and then obviously the core four guys. You know, the the Paul Reddick. Blake DeAndre core has now been together for, uh, I think four seasons under doc rivers here. And you know, that, that really probably is more useful even at the defensive end of the court than it is offensively. And Paul has always been so competitive at the defensive end of the court. You know, you worry about most undersized point guards, you know, whether they're going to, you know, first off be at a size disadvantage in the post, but even above that, you know, are they going to affect the passing lanes, take those plays away, uh, be able to switch and defend bigger players. And he just fights so hard and is so strong that that's never been an issue for him. Then the other thing that's helping his defensive RPM this year is that his steal rate, which is always good, has been off the charts early in this season. And that'll probably come down a little bit, but that, and uh, you know, his three point shooting being as high as it's been at the start of the year really helps explain that RPM along with the team success they've had with him on the court. So the other thing that really pops off the page when you look at Chris Paul and, and uh, real plus minus is uh, his defensive real plus minus. He's uh, by far the best point guard uh, uh, defensively rated by real plus minus this season. Um, like uh it's three points per hundred possessions between him and uh the second best defensive point guard marcus smart um and then there's only four point guards who are ranked as above average defenders by real plus minus so far this season um and i know that the stat is is correct me if i'm wrong but i think is is uh slightly biased towards bigger players that there's like a height adjustment uh that is factored into a player's defensive rating um but i'm just curious about that uh that tweak and is that just sort of an early season uh trend that we'll see uh, go away as the sample size gets smaller because i looked at last year and i think there were 12 uh point guards who were ranked uh, as above average defensively and and yeah just four so far this year yeah here's how to, i'd explain it and you know t- to be clear because sometimes people get a little confused on this since i talk about rpm a lot and am a bit of a spokesman i i really have nothing to do with it it's uh, jerry engelman and steve alardi who have created this and you know, the concept of real plus minus is we're going to, it starts with adjusted plus minus, which is how does the team do with you on and off the court, uh, holding constant, you know, your teammates and the opponents and trying to factor in the effect of that on your plus minus. So 
that's a really great stat in theory. In practice, it doesn't work as well because of the fact that it's very noisy from year to year. It's kind of, you know, you're relying on these small samples where this player is on the court and this player isn't and so on and so forth. Uh, so the way to stabilize that is you include box score stats that it, it, to the extent that they help predict adjusted plus minus, which is more or less the box plus minus that you'll see on basketballreference.com uh, developed by Daniel Myers. But the one difference between box plus minus or the one significant difference, I should say, between box plus minus and the RPM prior is it, it does factor in height based on the fact that, you know, if you look at adjusted plus minus over time, generally def- big players are going to have better defensive ratings. Small players are going to have better offensive ratings, which kind of matches up to what we understand about basketball. When you go small, you're sacrificing some defense for offense and so on and so forth. So, Uh, To get to why that has such an impact on point guard defensive RPM early in the season, you know, right now that box score and height prior is a much bigger factor than it's going to be later in the season when we have a larger sample size of the adjusted plus the pure adjusted plus minus teammate, how you're doing on and off the court adjusted for your teammates. So over time, that will become a bigger factor. And there will be some point guards who will kind of prove themselves to be better than their height defensively. And that's, I think, why you see more guys at the end of the season in the positives than you do right now, even though it still won't be as many point guards rating well defensively as it will be power forwards or centers. And speaking of that and speaking to that, I, I think any statistic... Uh, creates um, value and, and validity based off of uh, you know common denominators of all the great players, right? You look at uh, real plus minus and, and Paul and Harden and Butler and Kawhi and LeBron are in the top five, Curry, Westbrook right on the outside. And then all of a sudden you get down to 15 uh, and there's this Latvian kid from, from New York who <laughs> plays in New York. Um, and listen, coming into this year, I was, I was pretty sure, um, maybe not pretty sure, but I felt strongly that there was a chance for him to be a 20 and 10 guy. Uh, Ian kind of had me pump the brakes on that a little bit. He's he's over 20 now. He, he's he's an incredible scorer. They've got him playing on the perimeter still. Um, they're trying to stretch him out in, in, in small uh, samples. And and Billy Hernan Gomez, who was his teammate, obviously in Spain, uh, and he have come together here and and um, they work well together at the four or five. And you could expect that to continue to happen with the Knicks. But Porzingis at 15. It's a pretty good indicator, although it being you know early in the season, uh, that he belongs at least right now in the periphery discussions of the league's best. Yeah, I mean, I think he has to factor into the all-star discussion this season. You know, his RPM is probably a little bit higher than what his box score stats would suggest thus far, which would maybe put him somewhere around, I'd say, 25th in the league, you know, right at kind of, again, on that fringes of where the all-stars are set. But not not really surprising when you look at, you know, how effective he was as a rookie. And then, uh, you know, I think it was Chris Herring who did some good reporting on this, the history of guys who come over from Europe tending to shoot better from three-point range in their second season than they do in their first, even more so than when you account for just aging. It's clearly some kind of an adjustment to the longer three-point line, and that's probably been you know the biggest thing for Porzingis so far, the fact that he's shooting 39% from three up from 33 as a rookie. That that really makes him you know not just someone that you have to respect from three-point range, but uh, a dangerous three-point shooter, and you know in combination with the volume he's starting to take this year, one of the league's better ones. 
Um, his the leap that he's taken this year has been pretty uh, pretty interesting. It's also been a little frustrating to watch uh, Nikola Jokic uh, struggle in Denver. Um, I'm wondering what you think about uh, the two of them, well, how they've performed this season, and then sort of relative to your expectations going into the year. I know uh, a few people were uh, expecting um, both Porzingis and Jokic to to maybe take a slight step back next year as their minutes increased, as they uh, sort of shouldered a, a larger load, maybe see their efficiency drop a little bit. But it seems like a that's, that's mostly been just been the case with Jokic. Yeah, you know, one for two so far, it would be <laughs> safe to say. Yeah, you know, Jokic started the year playing power forward next to Yusuf Nurkic, and that's kind of a it's a good problem the Nuggets have that they have two really talented young uh center prospects from uh the the uh former Yugoslavia but it it is a problem nonetheless because when Jokic was at power forward you know you saw that he wasn't rebounding as much naturally uh he wasn't getting the high percentage baskets inside that he got you know he was basically and even now when he's playing as a backup center at this point it seems like he's playing almost exclusively in the high post and not seeing as much time in the low post as he saw last season and while he certainly can do that he's such a skilled passer and that really hasn't changed from last year you know uh, the fact that he's not he has not taken that same three-point step forward in his second year that Porzingis did he's only shooting 22 percent thus far uh you know it doesn't seem to be at this point playing as much to his strengths as getting him more in that pick and roll game and involved in the low post might do Lastly, for me, from you know Porzingis, he's above 15 now at Madison Square Garden in in PIE, which I'm I've been big on uh, in terms of impact. I, I was curious, one of the very few people or two of the very few people I would ask this question or are on this discussion with me. So I know Ian's take, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on PIE and and balance. Porzingis has had games on the road um, where his where his level drops. He certainly feeds a lot uh, from the Garden energy. Loves the visuals, looking at the rim, which any shooter will tell you is a, is a big factor to the confidence, and um, he, he rides that confidence in a in a big way uh, at the Garden. Uh, what's what are your thoughts on on his splits there, uh, just from a from an impact perspective at home, um, and and maybe building off of that uh, going forward, and even having a bigger impact on the road. You know, I think it's something that that there can be a, a real effect. I, I thought it was really true with uh, Thomas Robinson and Will Barton when they played in Portland because of the fact that, you know, those two players were so reliant on energy and, uh, you know, not only, you know, the energy of the crowd, but also the fact that the Blazers kind of played a faster pace with them on the court at home than they did away. So it, it did seem like a real effect. But you do have to be a little careful, I think, with looking at the splits early in the season. I, I can't remember who wrote about this in baseball. But basically, you know, the issue you have is you've not only got the kind of game to game variation, the noisiness in the stats at home, but then when you also look at that on the road, it kind of has uh, a multiplicative effect when you're looking at the split between them. I think this was, you know, they were looking at the platoon effect, like are there guys who have uh, a uniquely strong difference between how they hit against left-handed pitchers and right-handed pitchers. And from year to year, it'll look like that's the case, but it doesn't tend to, you know, kind of hold over from year to year because of the fact that there's so much noise in those two stats. And, you know, I think when you're probably looking at a, uh, a small chunk of the season, you see something similar with home and away stats in the NBA. The other one that I kind of feel like is like this, there's been so much talk about the Timberwolves in the third quarter this season. And to me, it's hard to believe that that's kind of a real effect. It's probably just a case where they're not quite as good as they've looked in the other three quarters, but they're a lot better than they've looked in the third quarter, and it'll eventually even out. 
So I'm going to take you to a really uh, small sample size now. I want to talk about uh, three games for uh, Markel Fultz uh, from University of Washington. Uh, one of the you know one of the highest rated draft prospects uh, uh, this year, freshman point guard. Um, just pulled up his stats per 40 minutes. He's averaging 32.7 points, 8.1 assists, six and a half rebounds, two steals, one and a half blocks. Shooting 67% from the field, 50% on three-pointers. Um, so, I mean, like eye-popping numbers, and obviously we expect that to, to regress a little bit. You know, it's early in the season. They're not uh, not into conference play yet. But um, I wonder what you think about him. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to watch him play yet. And then um, if you can just talk about uh, some of the challenges of using statistics like this to project draft prospects it's easy to see a line like this and expect that you know there's sort of a direct path from here to to nba superstardom and i know that's not always the case well first off for those who don't know i'm a uw grad and a huge husky fan so very keep a very close eye on faults above and beyond the fact that you know he's in the mix for the number one pick and such a big nba prospect you know he's the huskies have played a fairly easy schedule so far it ramps up a little bit this week when they'll probably end up facing tcu and then they actually will face them next week again and then after that gonzaga so you get this, the meat of the non-conference schedule is still ahead and his numbers will probably and particularly his efficiency will come down but what's uh, uh, what's really been impressive to me is, you know, how well he shot from three point range, seven to 14 thus far. That was kind of the one maybe slight weakness for him is an offensive player was the fact that he's not a great standstill three point shooter. So if he adds that to his game, you know, you're it's really becoming uh, kind of a scary proposition because he's very good at, at creating off the dribble. He's an explosive finisher around the basket, a good dunker, and then an unselfish player, a guy who's willing to to find teammates. You know, I I know some people in the the Husky program, and they've talked about how kind of there's uh, there was. Uh, an effect where everyone else was so excited about the passes that Fultz was making in practice and, you know, that they started looking for those passes themselves, that there was a bit of a copycat effect with, you know, the passes he was making uh, early on in practice. So that's all very encouraging. I think the other thing you want to see from him, and he hasn't really been challenged there so far is, you know, can he be a consistent defensive presence? He's so big for a point guard at, you know, six foot four with a six ten wingspan that, you know, he's, He's got the tools to be a really good defensive point guard. It's a question of kind of whether he's going to buckle down and, you know, play every possession, which will be difficult with the offensive load he's sharing, he's shouldering, I should say. So uh, to the question of projecting to the NBA, you know, I think one of the one of the challenges that we're seeing more and more is the NCAA and NBA, you know, they were those games were fairly similar, I think, probably up through about 2004 since then is the NBA has opened up with the prohibition on hand checking and, you know, kind of the emphasis on spacing that game has become so much more open. Whereas now you watch a college game and it's congested because of this shorter three point line, you know, guys aren't stretching players, their defender all the way out to 23 feet. So it's easier to pack it in. Obviously the fact that zones are so prevalent, all of that, there's not as much space that's, you know, the fact that makes the fact that a guy like Fultz is doing what he's doing kind of in some ways even more impressive that he's doing it against a, a compact defensive, you know, uh, unit as opposed to the wider open uh, defenses he's going to face in the NBA. And then just, you know, the fact that 
skills that seem like they even the skills that seem like they should translate really easily don't always uh you see this for example with shooters the fact that someone like buddy healed can be a historically great three-point shooter in college and then come into the nba and struggle because of the fact that you're not getting as clean shots uh you're having to work a lot harder at the defensive end of the court all of these things you know make it so it's not always a linear progression from college to the NBA. There's a, there's really big error terms when you're trying to translate that performance like I do, even for someone who's had several years of college experience, let alone someone who's got one year. Last year I did a really long, uh, it's about a hundred page report on, uh, on one of the guards from around here, AJ English, whose father played in the NBA, uh, uh, uh Jojo English and had a great senior year, small, um, uh, you know, mid-major school at Iona College in the MAC, and he went down to Portsmouth. We went to watch him down there, and just completely dominated Portsmouth. Small gym. Um, the measurements down there kind of hurt him athletically, um, but you know the metrics really helped. He didn't end up getting drafted, and end up getting a good deal in, in in Italy. And I I mentioned him because that second round in borderlines, you know, getting drafted. Uh, you obviously deal and, and focus a lot more with Chad on the first round and, and lottery stuff and just really getting down to the nitty gritty and the numbers, uh, including the measurements, which uh, I think everybody from an NBA level pays most attention to in Chicago. Um, give me your uh, take on on how how quickly the metrics portion of it has uh, has matched up with the eye test uh, and then obviously the you know kind of the psychology behind uh, drafting a player at that level over the last five years. Well, you know, I think one of the interesting things is uh, when I first started at ESPN, I went back to kind of revisit all of my draft projections, which at that point, you know, seemed a little bit kind of out of date with the way the game was evolving. And one of the things that really stood out when I did that is that, you know, I was underrating mid-major players, uh, Damian Lillard. Uh, the year before, who had come out and then won Rookie of the Year and now developed into an all-star. You know, Steph Curry came out okay, but certainly not great by my rankings. And, you know, when I re-ran kind of the strength of schedule component of it, which is so crucial when you're looking at guys in college that play wildly divergent schedules from, you know, the the Kentuckys and the Dukes who are playing these extremely difficult schedules to some of these mid-majors where they're not challenged as much on a game-to-game basis. But, you know, it what what it came out there was it, based on the recent past that I was overcompensating in terms of strength of schedule and that I kind of needed to reduce the impact of that. So, you know, I think that that showed that, you know, there can be a lot of success for guys. You know, we'll see whether English in particular gets a chance, because one of the other things you see with the draft and, you know, maybe even looking at the fringes of the NBA is past a certain point, you know, the first first 40 guys maybe in the draft, the top 300 players in the league, those guys maybe separate themselves. After that, a lot of it is basically any the, the largely interchangeable group of players near replacement level who it's kind of just about being in the right place at the right time and getting the opportunity, and that's what gives you the chance to succeed. Um, so I think you see that both you know in terms of scouting that – it becomes a lot more difficult to predict, you know, which teams are going to like which players. There's a lot more divergence after the top 30 or 40 or so. And then also in the statistics where it starts to flatten out and, you know, guys have relatively similar projections. It's more a matter of taste than it is kind of, you know, this is a clear, this guy is clearly better than another. 
So I'm going to totally uh, nerd out here uh, with a question about draft models. This is something that we have uh, kicked around a little bit on Nylon Calculus, and nobody's ever tackled it, uh, maybe because it's totally implausible. But uh, I have this fantasy about a draft projection system that offers multiple uh, statistical projections for players based on uh, which team might take them. So you think about like mm. the, the top of the draft this year, and you would have a projection for J- for Jalen Brown if he ended up with the Celtics, a projection for him if he ended up with the Pelicans, a projection for him uh, if he ended up with the Sacramento Kings. And some of that is sort of like the obvious, um, you know, visceral stuff that the, you know, the Kings have been kind of chaotic and have not done a great job developing. Um, their draft prospects over the past couple of years. And, you know, everybody sort of thinks the opposite of the San Antonio Spurs, but there's also that thing of like, uh, of, of ending up in a place where, um, where there's going to be an opportunity to play, where there's going to be minutes right away, or maybe you're going to end up, you know, uh, Deontay Davis or something like that, where you're going to end up spending, you know, the bulk of your year in, in the D league. Um, and then when you think about these players, uh, often there's sort of like one tangible skill that they can do well right away that they can lean on immediately. Um, and maybe they end up in a situation where that's sort of all they have to do right away. You know, you, we've got time for your, for all these other parts of your game to develop, but if you can stand in the corner and, and, and make open three pointers, then that's all we need from you this year. Um, so I'm just wondering, you think, obviously statistically may not be feasible at all, but what do you think about that sort of generally, uh, as an idea? I mean, I think it gets to, you know, above and beyond draft projections, an issue that we have in NBA statistical analysis, which is, you know, in baseball, other than maybe park effects, you can take a hitter from the Baltimore Orioles to the Seattle Mariners, and they're still going to be the same hitter. In basketball, that's very much not the case because of the fact that there's so much interaction with your teammates and such a large importance of role and everything like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of concept is useful, not just for uh, projecting guys in the draft, but also projecting veterans. And then I think the other interesting aspect that comes up with guys in the draft is, you know, uh, if you go in the top five, you're going to get different minutes in all likelihood than you're going to get if, you know, if you're someone like Deontay Davis, like you mentioned, who he actually is playing a little bit because Brandon Wright is hurt, but you slip from maybe being the 20th pick to being the 30th pick and you go to a team that's now got an established veteran rotation and doesn't need that kind of help right away. So that's another interesting feature where, you know, you're expected to do a little bit more. I think when you get drafted higher, not just because you're probably more talented, but also you're going to get more opportunities than you're going to get if you go to a, a different team. You can follow him on Twitter at KPelton, NBA insider for, uh, NBA analyst for uh, ESPN. Uh, really needs no introduction. Uh, Kevin, really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Huge fans over here and look forward to talking to you down the road. Enjoy the NBA season. All right, sounds good. Thanks for having me.